All right. Um, if everybody, if anybody doesn't have one, there's some on the tables. There's just uh, we're going to start Second Chronicles today, and uh, again, we're just moving through, uh, moving through the books of the Bible here. For a second, I thought I'm going to do this in one week, and then discretion was the better part of valor. And I was like, let me just slow down. But I think two weeks, and then you know, some of the books get a little shorter: Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Uh, but uh, we're moving right along here. We're not really in a hurry, but I don't want to get too lost in the weeds and spend too many weeks on one book. So maybe one to three weeks is where I'm trying to keep it, depending. I don't think I'm going to do Psalms in one week, but uh, we'll get to that maybe soon. Um, we're going to start in Second Chronicles chapter number 30. If you want to go there, Second Chronicles chapter 30. Second Chronicles 30. And if you notice on your sheet, um, we've got 30 chapters, we've got 822 verses, we've got 26,069 words. The author is presumably Ezra. Um, there's not a lot of internal evidence of that, but that's like the consensus, because Ezra was so into the history, and he was a priest, and he was bringing Israel back, and the key word of Ezra is the return, so many attribute the chronicles to Ezra the priest. I would like die on that hill. I don't have a lot of evidence for it. Um, the time period that it covers is 1015 BC. This is the death of David and uh, the rise of Solomon the king uh, through about 588 BC. Again, these dates are Bishop Usher's dates. So he's a lot smarter than I am. So I'm going to defer to his dates. But again, those are approximates. Uh, if you look at the fall of Judah, People dated all over the place, but somewhere around there. We know it's from the death of David to the fall of Judah. That's Second Chronicles. And again, Jesus Christ is pictured as our king. Once we move out of these chronicles, we will see that. Now, I wrote this over here, and I don't know how well people can see it at home, but um, the board's a little shaky, so I'm not going to do much writing on it. But we have to remember, as we've said before, that Chronicles is the divine view of history. Chronicles is told from the priestly perspective, not the political perspective, not the historical perspective. You get that from Samuel and Kings. So 1 Chronicles is a commentary on 1 and 2 Samuel. 2 Chronicles is a commentary on 1 and 2 Kings. Again, a spiritual commentary, a commentary from the perspective of the priest's view, the divine view. Now, First and Second Sam, I'm sorry, First Chronicles has very much an inward focus. First Chronicles is about God's work within, becoming that spiritual man, becoming and building godly character into yourself, like becoming that David, right? That spiritual man inside of you. Whereas Second Chronicles has much more of an outward focus. It's about God's work without. It's okay, okay, you've built that character within, now let's build some things without. So, First Chronicles was about becoming a mighty man of valor. Second Chronicles is about being a mighty man of valor. First Chronicles was about David. Second Chronicles is about the sons of David, the lineage of David, the offspring of David. And as you see on your sheets, uh, some of the key ideas of this book are the seeking and the serving the Lord. That's a big idea. Are you seeking and are you serving the Lord? Second big idea is that you need a living faith to have a life of victory. All right? It can't just be your father's faith. It can't just be the faith of your 
ancestors. It's got to be your faith, active, real, living, if you want to have victory. We'll see that a little later on in the book. And a key verse, if you want to look at Second Chronicles 30, down by verse number 18. Look at the end of 18. And uh, <clears throat> it says, But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, The good Lord pardon everyone that prepareth his heart to seek God. That is a key phrase for the book. Prepareth his heart to seek God. The people that you're going to meet in Second Chronicles that prepare their hearts are going to have success, and the people that don't prepare their heart are going to fail and make a mess of things. Amen, Brother Pat. That's good preaching right there, right? Uh, That's true of us today. If you prepare your heart, you're going to have success. If you just let the weeds grow, you're going to see the wrong things spring up, and you're going to have a bad crop. So that's a key verse of the book. Um, And as it As you note on your sheet there, uh, the breakdown is pretty simple. One to nine is the reign of Solomon, and 10 to 36 is the end of the kingdom. It splits right right there. One to nine, the, the reign of Solomon. The king builds. The king prospers. It's all great stuff. We're going to look at one to nine tonight. And then the latter two thirds of the book, 10 to 36, it's all just going to hell in a handbasket. You got the nation splits, Rehoboam fails, uh, the kingdom declines, the temple's destroyed, and the exile begins all in the latter two-thirds of the book where the devil comes in, divides, and conquers. With me so far? Amen. Just smile and nod. Okay. So let's jump in now to some uh, Bible pictures and some important truths from Second Chronicles. And we're really going to focus on that first section. One to nine, the king builds and prospers. So let's go back to Second Chronicles chapter two. Now, and this is noted on your sheet, so you don't need. I don't need to write this anywhere. Those first five chapters, chapters one to five, are really about Solomon fulfilling David's charge to build the temple for the Lord. Now, part of me wants to stay right there and just preach on that for the rest of the night, because God has given us all a calling. God has given us all a charge. God has given us all something to do, whether it's to pastor, be a dad, be a deacon, be a minister, be a friend, be an evangelist, be a witness. We've all got something to do that our David has laid up in store and prepared for us and made it possible for us to do it. It's whether or not you have the courage and the willingness to do what your David has prepared for you to do. And in the first five chapters, Solomon takes that mantle up and builds what his father left him to do. Like I said, that's a message all right there. We could preach that message all night just on, will you take up the mantle and do what God has charged you and prepared for you to do? So many Christians are just like chilling. They're just like, you know, well, the, well, the trumpet's going to blow and I'm going to go up and it's going to be streets of gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a lot coming after that trumpet. <laughs> there's a lot coming after that rapture. There's a lot coming after even the millennium, man, that you better get yourself ready for because the people that pick up the mantle down here are going to be the ones that are going to be working out there. And I want to be in my father's business, not just now, but into eternity. So I want to be found faithful. Amen? Amen. So... Let's look at 2-1. This is where it starts, all right? 2-1. So Solomon fulfills David's charge to build a temple. Look at 2-1, all right? Here's where it begins. 
And Solomon, oh baby, determined to build a house for the name of the Lord and a house for his kingdom. I want you to see two things. Number one, please notice that Solomon's work started with heart attitude. Solomon made up his mind before he ever picked up a rock or ordered a cedar of Lebanon. Solomon said, you know what? I'm making up my mind to put God's work first. I'm going to build the temple first, and then I'm going to build my house. You see that? He didn't say, I'm going to build my house first, and then I'm going to build the temple. That's how a lot of us are. Amen. Myself included. God, if I've got some time left over, I'll give you a little bit of it. If I got some time left over, maybe I'll come to Bible study. If I got some time left over, maybe, pray tell, I'll do Operation Jerusalem this week. If I got some time left over, maybe I'll make prayer meeting. If I got some time left over, Solomon said, you know what? I'm making up my mind. I'm determining. This is an act of will. Ladies and gentlemen, serving God doesn't come from walking in the door and magical dust falling on your head. And all of a sudden, it's like, I'm going to serve God today. No, you've got to decide and determine, I'm going to do something with what God has given me. I'm going to do something with this book. I'm going to do something with this access. I'm going to do something. I'm going to determine. Are you going to make up your mind? Are you going to make up your mind? Solomon started by making up his mind, God, I'm building you a house. I'll get my house, but I'm going to build you a house first. Amen. That's a great, great lesson. Now look at verse 5 and 6. We're just going to excuse me, cherry pick some things out of these uh, first few chapters here. Look at 5 and 6. All right? 5. Um, and the house, as Solomon speaking, which I build is great. For great, I need an amen here. For great is our God above all gods. <laughs> but who is able to build him in house? Seeing the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Who am I then? that I should build him a house, save only to burn sacrifice before him. Look, Solomon's like, I'm going to build you a house, God, but just in case you thought I was stupid, I realize I'm not building a house that's going to contain you. I am not intending to house God, right? He says, the only reason I'm building this temple is so we can sacrifice to you, God, so we can have a place where we can worship you, God. Ladies and gentlemen and those watching at home, if you think your God lives in a house, you've got the wrong God. If you've got a God that only resides in a building, that is not a God, because what if the building is locked? What if you get a flat tire and you can't get to the building? I came from a church where you met God in a building. I'm glad I can meet God in a field. I can meet God in a hospital. I can meet God in a funeral home. I can meet God in my bathroom. I can meet God anywhere I want to. I can make an altar right there because of the blood of Jesus Christ, and I can meet God right there. Your God doesn't live in a box. Right? Maybe that's why God kept us in a school for a few years, so we get into our thick head that God is not bound by a building. Now, I know there's something special sometimes about a place the Lord gives you, but you could have church in a field. We know a lot of brothers that have church in a park. We know people that have church in caves. We know people that we read about history for men like Richard Wormbrand that had church in prison cells. Church is where the people come together and the Spirit of God is there and Jesus Christ is there. That's church. And if you think, I'm preaching to the choir, I know, this is for everybody at home. If you think you need to sacrifice in a building, 
you're in the wrong dispensation. Okay? There's a lot of people out there say, oh no, but they think they got to do something in that building to appease God. You not only have the wrong God, you're in the wrong dispensation. Now, the Jew, doctrinally, the Jew in the tribulation, he needs that temple. He needs that temple to sacrifice for the Lord because you're not going into the millennium without a temple to sacrifice. That's the picture. Before this whole great reign of Solomon begins that pictures the millennium and all the Gentiles like Sheba come to see him, he's got to build a temple first because those Jews need a temple first. Why? Because they've got to sacrifice to Jehovah and make some atonement for the innocent blood that they shed. They need a temple. Look at Colossians 2. You say, really? Sacrifices in the millennium? Sacrifices in the tribulation? Uh, yeah. Colossians chapter 2. I'm getting way too excited. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Now watch this verse very carefully. I know we read our Bibles. Um, maybe you started over this year. Maybe you're starting. I don't know. But uh, some of you... Pulling apart, pulling pages apart in Ezekiel. I get it. Uh, Colossians 2.16. Here it is. Ready? Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. Amen. We got, I got an email on Sunday afternoon. Got an email through our website. Was it good? No. Um, it was okay. If you're watching, person, thank you for the email. I've always heard... This is the person said, I've always heard that the true Sabbath is on Saturday. Will you ever have a service on a Saturday? I said, well, a lot of people, I said, I've said very nicely. Well, I've heard a lot of things. A lot of people say about a lot of things. It doesn't mean any of it's true. And I went on to talk about how these verses here, that we don't have to follow any particular day, right? We could, if we wanted to, have church on a Wednesday afternoon and that fit everybody's schedule because we're not supposed to be judged. We follow the pattern of the New Testament and we worship on the first day because that's what the apostles did to commemorate, remember that Jesus Christ started their new life. He isn't looking, we aren't looking forward to the Sabbath, right? The Jew worship on the end of the week because they were looking for the Lord to come. We worship on the first day of the week because he has started and given us a new beginning, right? That's the picture. But hey, if we had a meet on a Thursday, if we got locked out of the school and had a meet on a Friday night, you know what God would say? No difference to me. <laughs> Wouldn't matter to me. Doesn't matter. Let no man judge you in any of that respect. Where is the law? It is nailed to the cross for the Christian. But look at verse 17 which are a shadow of things to come. What? The Sabbath is coming back. The law is going back into effect. The law is coming back, people. You've got to get that. In the millennium, the law is coming back. There's a temple in the millennium. There are sacrifices in the millennium. People are keeping feast days in the millennium. You say, yeah, you got to stop thinking about the Bible from your Pauline perspective. The body of Christ is this unique thing that God is doing right now. But when God catches us out of here, you know what? He's going to go back to what he was always doing. Law-keeping, endurance, faithfulness, works, and faith. That's how people got saved in the Old Testament. That's how they're going to get saved in tribulation. That's how people are going to be justified in the millennium. It's not the same as now. You should thank God that you were born right now. That you get saved by grace through faith plus nothing. Amen. 
But one day, the law comes back. It says it right there. I'm not making it up. The Sabbath, the holy days, all those meats and drinks are a shadow of things to come. Paul's writing that. What's he talking about? Future, after the church age. Okay, if I were to ask you, where do you want to turn to for a full mention of the millennium? If you really wanted to find a full mention of the millennium, where would you go? Think about it. Where would you go? Where would you turn in your Bible? Ezekiel 40 to 48. Those chapters give the longest treatise of what the millennium is going to be like. And you know what's going on in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48? There's a burnt offering mentioned 14 times. There's a temple built and there's instructions for a priesthood. The sons of Zadok are instructed how to keep the priesthood. Why? Because that's what's coming back in the millennium. All that stuff's going back into effect. Go back to 2, uh, 2 Chronicles 2. Stick something to 2 Chronicles. We're going to jump around a little bit. Uh, we doing okay so far? Amen. All right, try the veal. 2 Chronicles chapter 8. All right, 2 Chronicles chapter 8. I want to show you something else here. Just little pictures, little things I'm pulling out about the temple. Give you a little food for thought, study a little more. Solomon says... Um, send me also cedar trees, fir trees, and algum trees out of Lebanon. For I know that thy servants can skill to cut timber in Lebanon. And behold, my servants shall be with thy servants, even to prepare me timber in abundance, for the house I'm about to build shall be wonderful great. Please notice that the temple Solomon built was made with trees. You ever read about that man in Mark chapter 8? God, Jesus Christ, heals him a little bit. He says, what do you see? He says, I see men as trees. Men are likened to trees throughout the Bible. Psalm 1-3, he shall be like a tree. Jeremiah 17-8 talks about a man being like a tree. Isaiah 61 talks about people being as trees of righteousness. Do you see the picture? The Old Testament tavern, the Old Testament temple was built out of trees. Trees are likened to people. What is fulfilled in the New Testament? In the New Testament, the Bible says, ye are the temple of God. Ye are the temple of the living God. 2 Corinthians 6 says, you know what you are? You're a saved man or woman. You're the trees. God's going to build his spiritual temple now, the body of Christ, out of you trees that God saves and uses to build that holy habitation through the Spirit. Ain't that wild? To think about you and think about us collectively as a habitation of God, as a place where God would dwell, that, that amazes me. I'll go back to look at verse number 9 again. Here's another thing. He says there, the end of the verse, Solomon says, For the house which I am about to build shall be wonderful great. Now, the English teacher in me almost twitches when I read two adjectives like that. That's like, we don't talk like that anymore. But God made the language so he could do whatever he wants with it. But he sounds a lot like his father. You ever hear how David talked about that temple? Hold your place there and go to First Chronicles 22. He said there, this house is going to have to be wonderful great. Wonderful great. In other words, translation, it's going to be awesome. This thing's going to be amazing. It's going to be like better than Taj Mahal times 100. First Chronicles 22, here's David talking about it. 
David's talking about it. First Chronicles 22.5. Don't go to sleep on me. First Chronicles 22.5, the Bible says, And David said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender, and the house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding magnificent. Translation, it's got to be awesome. It's got to be greater than anything we've ever built because, you know, God's going to reside there and we're going to worship God there. It's got to be unbelievable. And then Solomon turns around and says, it's got to be wonderful, great. I mean, to me, it sounds funny. We don't talk that way. But I think the bottom line is they're both so excited. They're just saying, this place has got to be great, unbelievable, awesome. You know what I see there? David's zeal rubbed off on his son. I don't know how, but I see Solomon picking up some of the zeal that David had for that temple. David said it's got to be awesome, and his son said it's got to be awesome. Now go to John chapter 2. You got any zeal? Sometimes we get saved for so long, we kind of poo-poo zeal. Oh, they've got a lot of zeal, but no knowledge. And I've got all this knowledge, and I'm as dead as a cracker, right? I've got all the... You won't have all this knowledge and no zeal. You've got to have a balance, man. The more you know, the more zeal you should have. The more you know about God and the future and what He's done for you and can do for you, it should make you be the first one. Hey, why is it that God sent Saul and Barnabas out? Why did He send the most seasoned guys out to be missionaries? Why? Because the guys that knew the most should have been the ones that had the most zeal. They did. And look at uh, John chapter 2. You know, your Savior had a lot of zeal. You know that? You know, your Savior wasn't just like calmly preaching and glibly opening the Bible up. He was hungry for the truth. He loved righteousness. He delighted in mercy. Um, John chapter 2 is talking about the, the son of David, not David, but the son of David, Jesus Christ, at the temple. 2.13, and the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changes of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he whipped them. Sweet Jesus whipped them. Okay? That's how your Savior feels about his work being defiled. He put some stuff together, and he started cracking these guys to drive them out. And he took a spurge of small cords. He drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. He wasn't a wimp. He was a carpenter. He probably had strong arms and strong forearms and calluses on his hand. And he picked up those huge tables and flipped them over and said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house had eaten me up. They remembered Psalm 69, where it prophesied about the Messiah having such a zeal for God's house that it consumed him. I think Josh was there many years ago, right? We were at Conestoga. Were you there that year that McGehee preached that message on, are you eating up with it? That was a great message. He preached, this guy preached a message at a youth camp. Just, I mean, it was one verse and a fit, but it was pretty good. It was just like, are you, he, was, he took that phrase and he talked about, are you eating up with it? Like, does the zeal of the Lord just kind of like consume you and occupy your thoughts and, you know, just fill your thinking? Are you just punching a card on Sunday, maybe punching a gold star on Thursday, maybe punching a, a crown on Tuesday? Or is this like Monday to Sunday? Are you just, Sunday to Monday, whatever, the whole week, you got my drift, right? <laughs> the whole week, you're just like 
thinking about the Lord, thinking about what you could do, thinking about, you know, prayer, thinking about other people, thinking about ministry. I mean, is it just something you put in a box? Your Savior was consumed with the things of God. David was consumed with the things of God, and it rubbed off on his son Solomon. Your Savior wants to rub off on you. Is it rubbing off on you at all? How could you look at the Savior? The Bible says he shall not fail, right? He's going to keep on going. He's going to finish it. He's going to love you unto the end. Doesn't that just like, wow, how could I give up on him? How could I not have a little zeal for him? We get excited about Super Bowls and college championships and basketball and work promotions. We get excited about all this stuff that in a moment, if the trumpet sounded, it would all be meaningless. But the work of God, your fellowship with God, your relationship with God, is it eating you up at all? Occupying your mind? Something inside you going, I'd like to get closer. I'd like to, I'd like to love him a little more. I'd like, to, I'd like to know his love a little better. I'm not talking about what you need to do. What you could be. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. I wonder, does your zeal rub off on anybody else? Dad? Mom? They're watching. <laughs> If they know this is just religion, right, and they go in on Sunday and you do your thing and you punch your card and then you're this other person, but you walk through those doors, bless God, brother, bless God, sister, praise the Lord, hallelujah, saved by the blood of the crew, get in the stupid car, let's go, right, that's who you are, they know, they know. They're watching me. They're watching you. Is your zeal infectious? Is your zeal contagious? You got any passion? For the things of God? Are you just like a bump on a log? Now, everybody's got different personalities. Some people are stoic. Some people are gregarious. Whatever you are, is there some zeal there for the Lord? You know what Spurgeon said? You're not going to like it. (laughs) Spurgeon said, If sinners are zealous in their sins, should not saints be zealous for their God? Man, how passionately did you chase the slop? and the filth, and the vomit. And man, if a guy had a girl in his crosshairs, he'd do everything but sell his lungs to hook up with her, right? You'd, do a, you'd jump over hoops, you'd jump up and down, you'd stand on your head to chase sin. But he's, the Lord is like, hey, come unto me, all you that labor. Come unto me, I'll give you rest. And we drag our feet. There's no zeal. Man, the zeal of thine house was eating Solomon up, and I think it was eating David up, and it was infectious. I hope it gets infectious. Go back to 2 Chronicles. All right, I know it's a Thursday night. I know it's a long work week. I'm with you. I know I'm the one talking, but you could say amen to that. You could say something in your soul. Say, Lord, I'd like to have a little more passion, a little more zeal, you know, a little more energy, a little more something. Help me, Lord. I'd like to have that. Even if you're tired, you can have energy in your heart and zeal in your heart. That's okay. The Lord knows your frame. He remembers your but dust. He's not mad at you. He just wants to see a little enthusiasm, just a little energy, just a little willingness. Um, 2 Chronicles 2, look at 17. What was I thinking? Try to do this in one night. What was I thinking? Uh, 2.17. And Solomon, watch this, 2.17, and Solomon numbered all the strangers, those the Gentiles, that were in the land of Israel after the numbering where David his father had numbered them, and they were found in 156, 50,000 and 3,600, and he set threescore and 10,000 of them to be bearers of burdens, and fourscore thousand to be hewers in the mountain, 
and 3,600 overseers to set the people a work. Please notice that Solomon put Gentiles to work to build the temple with the Jews. Do you see that? He put the strangers to work to labor with the Jews to build the temple. That's an Old Testament picture. Because in the book of Ephesians, the Bible says Gentiles are going to build the spiritual temple of God with the Jews in one body. Ephesians 2, the body of Christ, which is made up of Jew and Gentile, building one temple unto the Lord. That's a little preview of it there. Chapter 3, verse number 1. Here's another little thing about the temple. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah where the Lord appeared unto David, his father, in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Solomon builds the temple in Mount Moriah. Super importante. (laughs) Mount Moriah means, or Moriah means, chosen by Jehovah. It also means the bitterness of the Lord. Say, why that spot, Lord? Why Moriah? Genesis 22.2. You don't have to turn there, but that land of Moriah is where God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. The land of Moriah. 1 Samuel 24. That's also where God's judgment fell for David's sin of numbering the people. And most people agree that this place of bitterness, this place chosen by God, is likely the hill where Jesus Christ was crucified. Golgotha, Mount Moriah. That's where he puts the temple. You know what's there today, right? Go to Revelation 11. You know what's there today. The Dome of the Rock is there today. There's a Muslim shrine there today. Isn't that wild? And a religious Jew can't even go on the Temple Mount, right? They can't even go up there. Erase Cain if they go up there. That just cracks me up. Man, is the Lord going to pull a fast one on a bunch of people in a few years. He's saying, you're not going to let my people up onto my mount because you got a golden dome commemorating where, you know, Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. That's what Islam put there. You ever read this in Revelation 11? This is an interesting verse. I'll just throw it at you and let you speculate on it. Talk about the tribulation. And Revelation 11, 1 says, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and then that worship therein. This is tribulation. But the court, which is without, something right outside our temple, leave out. Don't measure that. And measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. I wonder if that has something to do with that dome of the rock being there. Right there on the Temple Mount. The Lord says, hey, hey, measure our temple. But right outside of it, there's something that the Gentiles have dominion over. Don't measure that. That's not part of our show. That's something the Gentiles are doing in the same spot within stone's throw of the temple. But man, one day the Lord's going to take that all back. He's going to take it all back. And, you know, they could put up their fit and they could threaten bombs. They could do all this stuff. And, you know, we hope they get saved. But listen, man, one day the Lord's going to crack that thing right open and he's going to put his feet down there. That's going to be where he is worshipped, not some other God, not some other moon God. Uh, Not going to happen. I'm sorry, Jehovah. That's where Jehovah's temple is going to go. 
community strike. All right, let's go back to Second Chronicles 4. Just little, little things to think about here and there. All right, moving right along here. I want you to notice also that a peculiar number pops up in the construction of the temple. Look at 2 Chronicles 4, look at 6. He made also ten lavers, and put five on the right hand and five on the left, to wash in them. Such things as they offered for the burnt offering, they washed in them, but the sea was for the priest to wash in. And he made, oop, there it is again, ten candlesticks of gold according to their form, and set them in the temple, five on the right hand and five on the left. He made also ten tables and placed them in the temple, five on the right hand and five on the left. And he made it a hundred basins of gold. I know I'm not a mathematician, but a hundred is a multiple of ten, right? It's ten times ten. Do you see the number of ten is getting mixed in there with the construction of Solomon's temple? The number ten is the number of the Gentiles. Now, I know that the temple is, you know, Israel is going to be centered around that temple, but don't forget that that millennial worship, the Gentiles are getting in on that, man. The Gentiles are flowing into that thing. They're coming up to that house to worship also. Look at Isaiah 56. I'll show you. It's just interesting. The Lord starts sprinkling the number of Gentiles into the construction of the temple. I think he's trying to preview, hey, my house shall be a house of prayer for all people. Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56. See, when you approach the Bible, you've got to be a detective. You've got to assume that everything is there for a reason. Now, you can go too far with that and get a little crazy, uh, but you've got to, you know, within the bounds of reason and other scripture, you start to see, Lord, what's that there for? And he might give you an answer. Isaiah 56, 6. Also, the sons of the stranger. Now, there are a lot of people of God that are strange. Amen, I got you, I'm one of them. But when the Old Testament talks about the stranger, he's talking about Gentiles that have saddled up with the Israelites and wanted to live with them. Also, the son of the sons of the stranger that joined themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant, watch it, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house and make them, uh, sorry, make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar for mine house shall be called the house of prayer for all people. Amen. That is a blessing. That is a blessing that the Lord says when this millennium comes around, I'm bringing the Gentiles in. I'm making a way for those people that want to be close to me. Even those that are far off, even strangers can come and worship me in this house. Look at Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2, look at verse 1. There's another good one here. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain, remember mountains are kingdoms in your Bible, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up 
to the mountain of the Lord, to the house, to the house, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. All nations are going to flow unto it in that millennium. That's why you see a little bit of Gentile mixed in in that construction. Now go back to Second Chronicles chapter 5, show you something else here. We doing okay so far? Yeah. Any heresy so far? Don't say amen. Second Chronicles 5, look at verse 9. Now, something peculiar happens once they build the temple. Something that did not happen when they had a tabernacle. It says, they drew out the staves of the ark. Right? So they were supposed to carry that ark, right? They had those rings on the ark and those long rods, staves, and they carried it. Why? Because the tabernacle was a temporary dwelling. So they'd carry it over here. They'd drop it down. They'd set up the tabernacle. When the pillar of fire and that cloud moved, they said, okay, God's moving. We got to move. Let's put the, you know, pick it back up and let's go to the next location. And you read, I think it's Numbers 33. It has all those different locations that they moved around in their journeys and in their wanderings. But when they built the temple, they take the staves out. Because the temple was supposed to be a place of rest. The temple pictures the millennium, which is a Sabbath of rest. No more wandering, no more wilderness, rest, rest. Solomon was going to be a man of rest, the millennial rest, chapter 6. Chapter 6 is Solomon praying and dedicating the temple. And we talked about this, if you remember, class Back in 1 Kings, how Solomon starts this prayer standing, 1 Kings 8, I think, and finishes the prayer kneeling, right? Showing a spiritual maturity there. But I want you to notice verse 24. Now watch this carefully and put your dispensational lenses on your glasses as you read this. He says, he's praying to God now, right? And if thy people Israel, not the church, If thy people Israel, a nation, not a body, if thy people Israel be put to the worst before the enemy because they have sinned against thee hmm, and shall return and confess thy name and pray and make supplication before me in this house, then hear thou from the heavens and forgive the sin of thy people Israel, and bring them again unto the land which thou gavest to them and to their fathers. When the heaven is shut up and there is no rain, tribulation, Elijah shuts up the heavens that there is no rain. When the heaven is shut up and there is no rain, because they have sinned against thee, yet if they pray toward this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin, when thou dost afflict them, Then hear thou from heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and of thy people Israel when thou hast taught them the good way wherein they should walk and send rain upon thy land which thou hast given unto thy people for an inheritance. Notice the temple here is integral to Israel's restoration in the great tribulation. They need to turn back to that place and get to that place and kind of make prayer towards that place. Now, every heresy in the world is a Bible truth in the wrong dispensation. Don't you know of a big religion out there that prays towards a building? They pray towards a big black rock in Saudi Arabia. And they think they need to pray towards that big black rock called the Kaaba in Saudi Arabia. They think they're not just with God if they don't pray towards the direction of that building. That's 
wacky, I know, but not in the tribulation, it's not. They're turning their hearts towards this place. That's what he says they need to do to be justified. So that false idea now is just a truth in the wrong dispensation. That's how most of your mistakes are. Look at chapter 7. Chapter 7 now is Solomon's great sacrifice of dedication. This is the greatest sacrifice in the Bible. You see verse 5? Verse 5, if you read it while I say it, there are 20,000 oxen. He said, that's a lot of bull. Yeah, that's a lot of bull being sacrificed. That's a lot of oxen. 20,000? 20,000? 120,000 sheep. That's a lot of blood. That was a lot of offering. That was a lot of slaying. This is a glorious sacrifice. That's what, 142,000 animals slain to commemorate and dedicate the temple. It's a big deal. Look at verse 12. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have, is a great promise, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. Remember, the temple is so they could sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, tribulation, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, tribulation, or if I send pestilence among my people, tribulation, Watch this. If my people, Israel, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now mine eyes shall be open and mine ears attempt unto the prayer that is made in this place. Brethren, I love you. I I, I love the flag, I love my country, I, wave, I fly a flag in front of my house, I don't let it fall on the floor, I think it's the best country you've probably ever had in a long, long time, but that verse has nothing to do with God saving America if Christians repent. I like the verse. I know you've probably heard many a verse preached about it. I've heard good men preach many, if my people would you call by the name, and all the Christians roar and rah. Let me tell you what. God wrote Ichabod over America a long time ago. Amen. Not over you, but over the nation, because the nation has forgotten God. The people in power have forgotten God. That promise is about a Jew in the tribulation getting saved out of trouble if they turn back to God and confess and he heals their land, Israel. That's what it's about. Now, we could draw great spiritual truths out of it. There's some nice spiritual applications out of it. But everybody that's claiming that verse, that we could turn this thing around if all the Christians would just repent, I'm sorry. The people in power have to repent. The people in power have to humble themselves. The people in the common people heard Jesus gladly, right? right? But the leadership said no, and God judged the country. So I'm glad for every Christian that is individually on fire for God, but until, you know, whoever they pick, and, you know, the president, and, you know, the vice president, and the senate, and whoever becomes the majority leader, if they roll the dice and somebody else gets picked, I don't know, but when those people get down on their knees and ask God to forgive them and change the laws they made that have spit in God's eye, then maybe you would see revival, but I'm a little skeptical of it. So, you know what I could do? I can have revival. All I'm saying to you is, 
don't get, you know, too hopeful or too hopeless. That verse is not about you and America and the eagle, and I've seen it so many times. Uh, it's nice. I'm not trying to poo-poo all that stuff, but it's just not doctrinal, right? Uh, it's a Jewish promise for Israel to get saved out of tribulation. Verse 16. Good preaching, Brother Pat. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just one. It's just, you know... <laughs> I'm proud to be an American too, but it's just the Bible is the Bible. The Bible is not an American book. Amen. The Bible is not told from an American perspective. Amen. It's told from a Jewish perspective. And this book is about a Jewish nation. That's the nation. That's God's nation. All right. Um, 16. There we go. Doing right good. Uh, for now have I chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever, and mine eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. Please notice that the temple was a perpetual dwelling. There was a permanence about the temple. The tabernacle was about something temporary and momentary and fleeting. That's why when you read through your Bible, and I said this weeks ago, your, bi- your body is sometimes called a tabernacle and says sometimes called a temple. When he's talking about the context of your physical body being a dwelling place for you, he calls it a tabernacle in 2 Corinthians 5. You know why? Because your soul is not going to live in this sack of sin forever. He's going to give you a glorious body, a body like unto his glorious body. He's going to give you a body like his body. One day you're going to leave this robe of flesh where it's going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and you're not going to have the same body. So when he talks about your body being a house for your soul, he calls it a tabernacle, 2 Corinthians 5. But when he talks about your body being a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit, he calls it a temple. Because guess what? God's not leaving you. He he sealed himself inside of you. So that's why the Lord sometimes calls your body a tabernacle, sometimes calls it a temple. Uh, Moving right along, verse 17. Let me take a sip here. And as for thee, that's like God saying, hey, Solomon, this is for you. And as for thee, if thou wilt walk before me, as David thy father walked, and do according to all that I have commanded thee, and shalt observe my statutes and my judgments, then will I establish the throne of thy kingdom according as I have covenanted with David thy father, saying, there shall not fail thee a man to be ruler in Israel. But if ye turn away, and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them, then will I pluck them up by the roots out of my land, which I have given them. And this house, which I have sanctified for my name, will I cast out of my sight and will make it a proverb and a byword among all nations. Wow. This is God's warning to Solomon. He says, Solomon... You do right, you guys will be okay. You don't do right, I'll uproot all of you. He just burnt 142,000 offerings for him. You know what that tells me? Don't ever think the Lord won't uproot you because of sin. Don't ever think you're exempt from God's judgment. Don't ever think you've got a pass. Don't ever think you can live and thumb your nose at God with impunity and because you handed out 50 tracts yesterday or because you're a pastor or a deacon or you've been saved 50 years or went on the mission field or anything else, don't think you can then start messing with sin and think God won't flip your world upside down. He took Solomon, a man of rest, a man that God highly esteemed, the son of David. He said, buddy, if you sin, I'm going to flip the whole thing over and wreck it all. 
That's how seriously God takes sin. Do you take it that seriously? We trifle with it because we think I'm saved. God knows my heart. What does that expression mean? God knows my heart. I'm going to sin, but God knows my heart. Yeah, he knows your heart. That's why he says, repent, stupid, because I know your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. I know your heart. If you trust your heart, you're a fool. I wrote it in my Proverbs for you. Look at uh, 17. You know what he says there? Walk as David thy father walked. Isn't that an amazing thing to put in the Bible? Remember? Remember? Somebody's saying, yeah, I remember. What do I, what do I remember? What do I remember? <laughs> it's the priestly view. It's the divine view. Walk the way you David walked. Like Bathsheba? Like the numbering of the children of Israel? No. You know why? The divine view doesn't see all that. The divine view only sees your standing, not your state. The divine view is how Christ sees you, right? He sees you perfect in Christ. He says, walk the way David thy father walked. It's like the God just doesn't want to acknowledge those sins. He doesn't even mention them there. That's a great blessing. The priestly view does not mention David's sins. But it would be good practically to walk the way David walked. You know, David stumbled in his walk. But you know what David did? He repented and returned to the Lord. That's a good way to walk the way David walked. Even when he made a mistake, he confessed it and he made it right. And he wasn't afraid to, you know, keep God's name clear and take the shame and bear it himself, Psalm 51, that God might be justified. What I'm saying is any guaranteed blessings you think you have are canceled because of sin. I don't mean your salvation, but your victory, your joy, your peace, maybe even your health, and maybe even your physical life. God could take it all away if you're going to plunge into the pig pen. Man, I just, I've had an education the last few years. Christians, I don't know. I'm glad I'm not God because I would have killed a lot more people than God kills. God is long-suffering. Thank God he's so long-suffering. He should have killed me. I would have killed me, right? But the Lord is long-suffering. But don't think that the long, don't take God's long-suffering and just dance in your sin because of it. Let it cause you to repent and humbly say, Lord, thank you for your long-suffering. Help me not to be an idiot. Because you're not guaranteed any earthly blessings. You're not guaranteed victory. You've got to walk in the light of God. You've got to walk according to this book if you want the blessing. 21. And this house, which is high, shall be an astonishment to everyone that passeth by it, so that he shall say, Why hath the Lord done thus unto this land and unto this house? And it shall be answered, Oh, baby, highlight, underline, because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them forth out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore hath he brought all this evil upon them. Israel's sin would lead to the destruction of the temple. And you think you're going to get a pass? You think you're going to get a pass when God is willing to let his own temple be a reproach and sit there like a reproach? Sin is a reproach, the Bible says, to any people, including God's people, including us. What a reproach that the world would look at your temple and see it desolate because of sin. That they would look, ooh, what happened to him? Or what happened to her? I thought they used to go to church. I thought they used to be Christians. I thought they said they were saved or knew that Jesus stuff. I thought you read the Bible. Oh, what a reproach. What a reproach. People be astonished. You? 
I thought you went to church. I thought you claimed to know God. I, you, you, you gave me those Bible pamphlets. You're doing this stuff now? What a tragedy. What a tragedy. Chapter 8. 8 and 9. Last points here. 8 and 9. Solomon's wisdom now on full display. A picture of Christ now in the millennium. Notice some things about it. 9-1. And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, she came to prove Solomon with hard questions at Jerusalem. With a very great company, camels that bear spices and gold in abundance and precious stones. When she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. Solomon told her all her questions. There was nothing hid from Solomon which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, here it is, the wisdom of Solomon. You know what this picture is? Can you just picture this? The Gentiles all coming to Jerusalem to hear the wisdom of your Savior, to hear Jesus Christ teach them His law. That is unbelievable to think about people from Italy and people from China and people from all over the place. They're going to come and make a pilgrimage to see it's always a truth in the wrong dispensation. They're going to make a pilgrimage. Hello. They're going to make a pilgrimage and visit your God sitting on his throne to hear the words from his mouth. There ain't a movie that could capture that. Look at it. Micah. Go to Micah. There's where the pages are stuck together. Micah. Go to Micah chapter 4. Actually in the middle of Micah right now. Micah chapter 4. Jonah, Micah, right after Jonah. You say, where's Jonah? Well, (laughs) Micah chapter 4. Look at Micah 4.1. But in the last days, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and the people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Woo! Look at Zechariah, second to last book of the Old Testament. If you hit Matthew, make a left. Zechariah 14. Look at verse 16. Now the second coming has happened. This is, tri- this is millennial promises here. Put yourself in the right spot. Second coming has happened. We're in the kingdom now. Zechariah 14, 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, this is that remnant that goes into the millennium, uh, shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whosoever, whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain and if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain, uh, there shall be the plague, where the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Please notice that those nations in the millennium need to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. 
the seventh feast, the last feast in the Jews' religious calendar, September, October, the Feast of Tabernacles. Back there in Staten Island, they got a, they got a church building right next to an Orthodox Jewish house, and we watched them in September, October, build that little thing off their house, right? They get their little, uh, whatever, their little booth, and they, have, they celebrate their Feast of Tabernacles when God tabernacled Amen. with men when God would take on flesh and dwell among us. But please notice that in the millennium, they're remembering the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles commemorates the second coming of Christ. You see, the Father wants to remember the second coming of Christ. You know what you remember? You look back to the first coming of Christ. You look back to Calvary. You remember Calvary. For you, it's all about Calvary. Why? Why? Because that's where he died for our sins. That's where we got life. That's where we got hope. That's where we got delivered from hell and the promise of heaven. But that wasn't the Father's greatest day. The Father's greatest day is when his son comes back and gets the throne that he deserves. And all throughout the millennium, he says, no, no, I don't want you looking back to Calvary. I want you remembering the Feast of Tabernacles when my son came back and tabernacled with men and established a kingdom. That's what the Father wants to remember for all the kingdom and into eternity. Go to 2 Chronicles 9-7 again. Hurry with me now. Just got a few stops left. few stops left. 2 Chronicles 9-7. You doing okay so far? Can I give you just a little more? Finish this? All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know what you're supposed to say when I say that. You're just stuck. 9-7. You see what the Queen of Sheba says? Happy are thy men. 9-7. Second Chronicles. Happy are thy men, and happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee, and hear thy wisdom. Now, apart from the doctrinal nuggets in there, we won't touch on that, but here's a practical thing. Hey, If you want to be happy, you have to keep seeking and keep serving. It's okay. It's all right, Siri. I'm all right. Right? You have to keep on. She says they're happy because they continually hear thy wisdom. If you want to be happy, brethren, you've got to keep serving and keep seeking. You've got to do it continually, continually. Too many Christians quit. They stop listening to God. They stop hearing God right before God can give them the blessing. You wouldn't do that with the diet. You're about to quit that diet in a week. I'll give you the two weeks. But you know what? You wouldn't blame the diet that you quit. If you did a diet for three days and then quit, and you said, ah, it's a stupid diet. It didn't work. I'd say, you quit the stupid diet. Why are you calling the diet stupid? You're stupid, right? It's not the diet's fault. It's your fault. Because I didn't get anything out of church. I get anything out of the Bible. Oh, you gave it three weeks. Congratulations. Some of us have been at it a lot longer than three weeks and we're still trying to get off the hem of the garment, right? you got to give it time and work. Those four-letter curse words that Christians hate. Go to Proverbs 3. Hold your place there and go to Proverbs 3. Hurry with me to Proverbs 3. you got to continue, brethren. you got to continue. Paul told Timothy, Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. 3, Proverbs 3.13. This sounds like Solomon's servants. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom and the man that getteth understanding. You know what you got to do once you found wisdom? 313 is you find it, you're happy. And I know it's exciting in the beginning. Oh, look at this truth. Oh, I got saved. Oh, the Bible. Yeah, but give How about six months later? How about a year later? How about five years later? You go five years? How about 10 years? How about up until the rapture sounds? 
I want to be faithful until the rapture sounds, man. I don't want to be a castaway. And in verse 18, it says, She is a tree of life, talking about wisdom. That's she. To them that lay hold upon her. And happy is everyone that retaineth her, holds on to her, keeps listening to her. Man, you got to continue in God's words if you want to be happy. you got to keep on. Go back to 2 Chronicles 9. We won't flip it. Oh, we'll flip one more spot. But 2 Chronicles 9, look at verse number 17. He makes a throne. Want to see this throne? Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. The king's throne is made of ivory and gold. That's a picture of your king. Ivory. You know how you get ivory? Something has to die to get ivory got to kill an elephant or something else to get ivory. You know what that throne shows you? It shows you the humanity of Christ because he had to die to get that crown. He had to die to earn that reward. He had to die to get that rule and that reign, to be counted worthy of it. You know what? Then it's overlaid with gold. Something had to die, and somebody dignified is going to sit there. The humanity of Christ, the ivory, the deity of Christ, the gold. In the same throne, in the same king, your king. 22. 22 and 23, I'll just skip over that. It's another beautiful foretaste of the millennium. Just the wisdom of Solomon, the presence of Solomon, just a glorious promise there that will be fulfilled uh, in the millennium. 25. 25 is a so-called contradiction that King James Bible skeptics love. You want it? You ready for it? Here it is. 25. And Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots. Got it? 4,000 souls for horses and chariots. Okay. Hold your place there and go to 1 Kings 4. 1 give you this little problem text. I remember Pastor Dean many years ago taught us problem text in the Institute. And he said, a, a devil has to show you this stuff. I don't know anybody got this stuff on their own. But uh, first, uh, first, they say 1 Kings, right? 1 Kings 4. That's what I said, because I'm not in that book. I didn't know if I said it to you or to me. 1 Kings 4.26 And Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots. So 1 Kings 4.26 says 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots. And 2 Chronicles says 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots. That's it. I'm giving up my Bible. I'm throwing it out now. You got me now. What do I do? It's easy. Problem? No. Read the verses. Second Chronicles. We got 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots. And in 1 Kings, we just got 40,000 stalls of horses for chariots. So it's pretty easy. You put 10 chariots, 10 horses on each chariot, and that's how it worked. He had 40,000 horses, 10 went to each chariot, so he had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 40,000 stalls for just the horses. Put 10 horses on a chariot and you had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots. Not a contradiction. The contradiction is in you, not in the Bible. And then last, 31, 31, 2 Chronicles 9.31, we'll end with this. 2 Chronicles 9.31. Please notice this beautiful thought here. 2 Chronicles 9.31 Bible says, and Solomon slept with his fathers, 
and he was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his stead. Do you notice that the priestly divine view passes over all of Solomon's failures? All of his idolatry, all of his wickedness, all of his heart getting turned away by his strange wives, Chronicles doesn't mention it. Because that spiritual view, that divine view that Chronicle gives us, sees you in Christ, sees your standing. And the Bible says, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And remember, when God looks at you in Christ, He doesn't see your wickedness. He doesn't see your failures. He just sees you in His Son. And that's a great reminder that God sees Solomon that way there. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Thanks for being here tonight. I hope you got something from that. Uh, We'll have a word of prayer. And... uh, Just be mindful of stuff coming up and...